Building a great culture is a challenging task, and many companies never manage to pull all of the intricate pieces together. But when they do, the magic happens. Today, we're talking with an expert on what makes culture go, so stay tuned. Hey everybody, this is Chris Brandt here with Sundish Patel. Welcome to another future podcast. Just want to take a moment to ask everybody to subscribe. That helps a ton. I recently read The Soul of Startups, The Untold Stories of How Founders Affect Culture by Sophie Teen. In the book, Sophie chronicles her experiences as an HR professional in the world of tech startups. She has a front row seat to the good, the bad, and the downright ugly of the industry. And throughout it all, she shares what she has learned from the pains and joys she found in the land of tech startups. The book focuses a lot on the character that founders bring to a company, but it is a bigger story than just that. Building a great company takes grit, empathy, and vision, and buy-in from the people that make the company go. Today, we are fortunate to have with us Sophie Teen, author of The Soul of Startups, to tell us about what she has learned. Welcome, Sophie. Well, thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for being on. I think this is going to be a fun conversation. The talk Talking about culture is always um, an exciting thing because I think it's so important. Um, and when it goes wrong, it's so devastating. And when it goes right, it's sure. such magic. Um, but before we get to that... Tell us a little a bit about your journey and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Um, where do I even start? I feel like it's been decades <laughs> that I've been working. <laughs> um, I, I was an engineer when I first graduated from um, university and then kind of hit the uh, financial crisis, to be honest, and then didn't really get to get a good job in engineering. And then for some reason, I kind of feel like when I look back, it's destiny now. Um, I fell into a startup space. I was working for a recruitment company that was recruiting for engineers. So it kind of felt like, hey, this is going to be my sweet spot, right? Um, and I just never looked back since. I kind of you know, evolved into talent, um, people, operations, and then fast forward 10 years later, here I am working with some of, um, some of the some of the best companies I've actually had worked with and had the privilege to um, work with some great leaders as well. And this is how the book kind of came about. Yeah. And it sounds like you worked for some that weren't so great as well. I mean, you, you did, you know, kind for of sure. cut your teeth in some challenging situations as well. I, I, I imagine that was difficult, huh? But maybe a bit great learning experience. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? <laughs> for sure. For sure. <laughs> so, so tell me a little bit about like, you know, obviously, you know, you focus, you're, you're in the HR world right now. You're, you're kind of an engineering background um, and you like, you know, tech space. Um, but, you know, your focus is around culture. You know, why did you choose sort of the culture as, as kind of your main focus here on all of this? I think I've always knew that I wanted to be in the people space. But, you know, you kind of have to work your way towards becoming a person that you kind of get to choose the vertical that you really get to, you know, do or explore your passion. And so I obviously did my hard times. I did, you know, I did the times where I would have to work on performance. I would have to work on talent and work on everything else. And then it kind of reached a point where the more time I've spent in startups, the more I've realized that there's this human connection here. People talk about building human-centric or people-centric businesses, but very, very seldom you will see leaders that actually truly understand that concept altogether. And they kind of palm this off towards 
the very HR leader or the very HR person in the company to kind of go, this is a people problem or this is a people agenda. Can you fix this or if not build this kind of culture for us? That's when it kind of hit us when I realized, you know what, we actually need to work in tandem in these things. And so the more I've kind of explored different kind of mechanisms to create better workplaces, to create better cultures in companies, I just realized in the last couple of years that this is the very thing that is actually going to make or break companies. I know it's often that we say people make or break companies, but where do people come from? And as much as the people behaviors evolve, it really just come down, comes down to the culture. I know that a lot of co- people who start companies, you know, you've got the engineers, you've got salespeople sometimes, you've got, you know, people coming from various backgrounds and they get very hyper-focused on, you know, like we have limited resources, limited time, and we got to focus on building the product and doing this. Um, there's a level of maturity, I think, that's difficult for, you know, the startup crowd to to, to achieve. I mean, can you speak to what you see in leaders of young companies? I think predominantly when, when a company is young, they're learning how to mature themselves in the ways of working, right? And we use this word a lot, especially when it comes to a startup world. But at the end of the day, we're really talking about the behaviors, you know, how you react to certain situations, how you make decisions um, based on whether or not you're being objective or emotional. And ever so often leaders, um, especially in these young companies, they get penalized for not making the right decision but what essentially is the right decision for that company only that particular company knows themselves and this is what I've learned throughout my journey so when it comes to young leaders or young companies they forget that they are on a journey to create this company but then they need to be on that journey themselves if if they're ever in a space where they feel like they need to read a thousand books for them to become the best version of leadership themselves, then I would say stop right there. Stop at maybe 10 books already. It's because if they forget to spend time in listening to the culture and watching how their people behave and then start start to realize whether or not this is the kind of company or environment I want to continue to create and nurture that's when they actually need to start learning how to build better companies. I also, I also believe that I've also had the privilege to work with very good young leaders who've just got it from day one. They knew that they've never done this before, so therefore they have this open-mindedness and willingness inside of them where they go, great, this is a great topic, this is a great discussion, let's talk more about this, let's workshop, do our people actually want this? Do I know that I'm delivering the right things for our people? Are are, are our foundations scalable enough? And these are great questions that young leaders should ask more. Sundish is an interesting case study because he's been, he's only had two jobs. (laughs) And (laughs) one one was at NetApp and the other was at, you know, this company called Datalink, which, you know, eventually moved on to, you know, be acquired by other companies and things like that. And and, and I think, think, um, you know, the struggle has always been, the character of a company at a young stage and as it matures is very different. And I think that's always been a challenge uh, in, in your eyes, right, Sundish? And you see that in a lot of companies we yeah. work with. You know, in the tech industry specifically, we used to see people sticking around for a long time. You know, um, people would be a, at a company for eight years, 10 years, 12 years, and they'd love it. And uh, after a decade or so, they'd go somewhere else. Now, that is completely changing. And um, more and more people that I'm talking to, I get phone calls all the time from people that are looking for a new job. Like all the time. They're like, hey, man, I got to get out of here. You know, uh, where do I go? What do I do? And sometimes I say, 
I don't know if it's better anywhere else sometimes, you know, um, because I really think culture has become a huge, huge problem. Um, And it's it it was the reason why people stayed. But now it's the reason why people go. Mm, So my my curiosity and, and, and my question to you, Sophie, would be. If we were to look at culture from like a scientific perspective and and look at it in terms of like what are the variables in your studies, what are the key variables, what are the levers that ultimately make the biggest impact in having a good culture? Uh, I I love that question. I think I think just just based on all the research and also from you know my my gracious interviewers that were willing to share their experiences, some of the very key patterns that we've been able to see that create great cultures are when you have a really honest and transparent culture. And I don't just say this as something that we believe, oh, communication needs to be a lot more transparent. It's simply, you know, having leaders in the company that are willing to share their mistakes, their failures, just as well as celebrating their success. In a lot of cases, these these kind of situations create a culture where people know that they belong to the same journey. It's almost like you're not creating an ivory tower with which many, many companies tend to do, right? You tend to see a a bunch of leadership teams and they are the only people making decisions that will impact the very lives of their their companies. But when you have an open, honest and transparent culture, it simply means that no matter the person, the level, the seniority they are in the company, they know for a fact that every single small thing that they do is impactful for the company. That's when I call it a great culture. You can choose to be in it or you can choose to leave it or you can choose to continue to join this, uh, to be on this journey for as long as it takes for the company to be as successful as they intend to be. Then on the other hand also is this ability to actually collaborate. Everybody might think that everybody might think that they want to collaborate with people that they like. But ever so often when you're in a company, especially when in the fast paying, uh, fast paced growth, you're also collaborating with people that you don't necessarily like. You probably <laughs> don't have the same principles that align to your core as well, but you've got to get the job done, especially in a startup environment, right? It's about this hustling um, culture. But is hustling culture really bad for us? I I tend to say no because I feel like you get a lot more deliverables out of that. But it's really, but it really comes down to how you see the quality of those outcomes. So another pattern that we've seen uh, a lot in these successful startup cultures that people actually, you know, they put a thumbs up every time you ask about this company. You know, you can ask about company X, ask any random person in there, they give you a thumbs up and they go, I love it here. And most of them has a really huge hustle culture as well. But it technically just means that these are very high performing individuals that just love to kind of tick off the boxes. They know where they're getting to. They can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And it all comes part and parcel of being able to work in a collaborative culture. Uh, People have this respect towards each other and the work behaviors just actually align. So a lot, so many of the things that you said there uh, really resonate, especially in the tech space. And so like my experience, just like, well, Chris has many experiences, but uh, my experience have been startups in the tech space. And the one thing that I see um, that is just becoming more and more problematic is the ego. Uh, It's the ego of the founders. And the more and more I'm seeing people that are building something, not necessarily because they believe so much in that problem Mm. that they're trying to solve or the product or the space or the tech, but it's really about how big and how fast can I build a company, sell it, go IPO, make a 
ton of money and then go on and do my next thing and my next thing. And I think in that, I think that ego is driving the bus so many times that you see it throughout the whole organization. You know, you, 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 you see that the people are scared to say anything, you know, people are worried about mm. it, you know, uh, to, to say anything. People are, they don't believe, they don't trust, you know, and when there's no trust with leadership, you're in trouble. And not just because these people might leave is they might stay, but they might not care. And so like, if they don't care, you're you're only going to get fifty percent of that employee, you know. When and it's you're always really the good ones to, that leave first, too. Totally, it's For the sure. ones that have options, you know. So I don't know. That's uh, I don't know if you have any comments on that, but I just like think the the ego uh, of founders and leaders is becoming more and more problematic, um, you know, and it's infecting culture big time. For sure, I I definitely echo what you're saying. I do have to also kind of. Um, point out that it re- exactly like what I was saying earlier, can we also be really honest about who we are as leaders, right? It's okay, you know, I, I'm not going to say that it's totally okay to be this e- egoistical maniac that runs a large size business and kind of, you know, every single behavior that you that you have creates this detrimental effect towards your employees, which is obviously not what we want to look forward to. But at the same time, if we're really honest about, you know, the company being there to make money, we want to go into an IPO as soon as possible. We want to make tons of money for everybody that joins this journey. Then just be honest with it. I've actually worked with some founders who are very honest about the kind of company they want to create from the get-go. And with that honesty, they've gained my respect. I know that if I'm an advisor in that company, I'm specifically doing doing the very same thing that you would like me to do because I would feel like you're being honest, right? And also also at the end of the day, it's it ultimately comes down to their goal. But as soon as they try to spin this around and be like, we're a human-centric, we're a people-centric company, but you know, when we make tons of money, we want everybody to be happy, we want to run more socials because this is where we can contribute back from, but then all this toxic um, relationship and this toxicity happens in the background just because we have twice a year you know, company retreats out in, I don't know where, in a ski trip or something, this is when it actually goes wrong because you should not be lying to people who are so willing to come to your journey. Exactly like what you were saying earlier is people have choices. Let them make their own choices. In your studies, where has compensation played in culture? You know, what, what is the data telling you? Compensation is very, very much in the core of every conversation when a candidate comes in and join a company especially in a startup, but I feel the startups have actually a lot more flexibility to use compensation to entice the right kind of behaviors and the right kind of candidates that they want in their pipeline. For example, I would say when a company doesn't necessarily have a great employer branding presence and they're just starting out and uh, they don't necessarily know how to treat their people as well as you know the Netflixes of the world, they would then use compensation as a way to entice them to join their journey and then slowly kind of work towards offsetting it with different kind of benefits and culture becomes part of that very core benefit as well, as we can see. On the other hand, you would also tend to see in the market that when a company has a great employer branding, everybody knows that they're doing really well. They have you know five-star reviews on Glassdoor as such 
their compensation usually comes down to a lower pay packet or a lower lower banding, for example, the 50th percentile or the 75th percentile compared to a company that will try and you know, use a 90th percentile, if not more, to attract candidates just because they don't have a better culture. So I do see most of the time compensation and culture does actually go hand in hand. So that's a very good catch from you. In your book, you kind of talk about, you know, the founder's influence on culture. Where, But, you know, I, I, that's not the whole story. Where, where does culture, good culture come from? Culture is the very soul of the company. So it the, the very soul of the company is essentially the people, the way they behave, like I said earlier, um, the way they react to certain um, emotions, uh, situations, but also the way they behave with each other. So for me, from the research, it's very clear that it, came, it started from the very top, how the founders behave will eventually create the kind of culture that um, that will that you will see at the end of the day in a company. But the evolution of the way they treat their people as well um, is also is also part of that culture because because I think founders tend to think that they are a certain type of personality and they want to create a company that really really kind of fits into a very mold of themselves. But we all know that that's sometimes impossible because you've got to let other people in. You've got to diversify the mindset and the behaviors in a company. So culture really is just a collective understanding is something that you can touch and feel from all the way of uh, from all the people and the way they behave. We talked about some of the things that, you know, make the culture go awry. And I think that, you know, one of the things that we're seeing from this sort of lack of uh, culture in a company is sort of this thing that everybody keeps talking about. Well, one this is the great resignation, but the other more kind of nuanced piece that is talked about a lot is this concept of quiet quitting. I think there's a huge misperception out there, um, to be perfectly honest. They, we, we've described quiet quitting um, today as doing the bare minimum, but rather from a HR perspective, I just see it as an opportunity for people to finally create these boundaries, employees to create boundaries and employers to create boundaries and actually just doing the job that you're hired to do. Going above and beyond should never be something that employers take for granted anyway. Yes, on the other hand, in a startup world, in a fast-paced environment, you tend to take more advantage of your people because you can. But at the same time, as employees, if you flip the, the coin to the other side, I would see it as a great opportunity for me to go above and beyond my role because there are, there's a, there, there isn't that big of a leap for me to get to my career point or my career aspirations because I'm not working around or navigating myself around red tapes anymore. So is this a new concept? Definitely not. But I think it's a great opportunity for, for the workforce today to create some of those boundaries. Then on the back of that, we now have already seen the entire workforce landscape change. We're talking about, you know, nomadic workforces. We're talking about hybrid, remote, and going back into the office seems like the worst thing you can do for your employees, right? But at the end of the day, I truly see it as as it being the very starting point of finally achieving work-life integration. It's almost like I want to work really hard for the company because I truly enjoy the job that I'm doing. But hold on a minute, I also want to have a life. I think that's really interesting. And I think that, that you have a great perspective on that because, you know, it is about sort of right-sizing your role in a company and creating balance in your life so that, you know, you don't get burned out and all those things. But, you know, if you look at the statistics, you know, the high, the biggest dollar crime 
in the United States at least, isn't, you know, all these other, you know, robberies and getting mugged and car thefts and all that. But if you look at it, all that combined is dwarfed by the by wage theft, right? <laughs> you know, where companies, you know, like make their employees work, don't pay them the right amount, you know, like all of those sorts of things. So, um, you know, it's it's something that's not really talked about a lot, and it's and it's an ex- expectation. You even talk about in your book where you get to a job and it's like eight o'clock or something, and everybody's still at their desk, you know, in the evening, and and you're like, I gotta go, <laughs> you know. But yeah. but I mean, you know, all that is problematic behavior that we don't really talk about enough. But it gets masked as sort of this ambitious drive. You know, mm. what are your thoughts around that? I was exactly in that position, right? And, you know, as I came out of it, I want to make sure that, you know, when I work with businesses, we're creating workspaces that doesn't allow that kind of behavior. But if you really rewind back to my experience, I was probably just sitting around waiting for everybody to leave because I've already, you know, finished my job. I was being very productive, I would like to say. That job well done, you know, I will carry on tomorrow because we're not saving lives here, let's be honest. Um <laughs> but but the whole concept of just sticking around for the sake of it for optics is just really bad um, bad integration into what we believe success looks like, right? I mean, I mean, I've yeah. worked with a founder um, and a CEO who's highly highly ambitious, but that's his choice. Not only it is his company, but it's also his choice of how he looks at what working means for him. On the other hand, as soon as we've established an understanding that. I don't do that. I'm more than happy to work until 6 p.m. I go home, I have a life, I have dinner, and then I come back to my emails for a couple more hours. But that's not exactly me saying that they're over, they're overworking me or they've u- overused me. I choose to do that because right. it's the way I would like to work. So if, if we can all come down to understanding our personal choices, I think the workforce is far better for it because it's, it's, you're absolutely right about wages theft. But if there's really no expectation or when employees start to create these kind of boundaries for employees to finally learn that, I really would hope that you would, we would see the landscape changing because we now have more choices. We've just talked about it. We now have more choices to find better jobs. We now have more choices to find better flexibility in our jobs. We also have more choices to find jobs that are, we are more passionate about. We, we no longer should be should be subjected to this whole expectation of this is what a job needs to look like because it used to look like that five years ago. When I had my had companies of my own, I, I found that, you know, like I, I always liked the people, you know, hey, well, they're here late and they're working hard and all that. But what I found out ultimately was that it's exactly what you're saying. The people who are staying late spent most of the day kind of screwing around because they're like, oh, I'll just do it later. I'll just do it later. It's like, it's too much going on in the office. It's too busy. After everybody leaves, I can get more stuff done and, you know, like all that. And then there's the person that leaves at five and because they know they, they're like, I got to catch this train. So I got to get all my stuff mm-hmm. done. They're very focused and they, you know, like they were the bigger producers ultimately, which was, for sure. you know, it seems kind of counterintuitive, but it, it does make sense when you think about it, right? I would prefer a, you know, productive workforce far more than just having, having, having an office that, you know, keeps the light on until 12 midnight. And I think that's a challenge that we have now with remote work because I, I find myself, I watch my wife, you know, we work sort of because we're kind of working at our whatever pace we want, whenever we want, and not, you know, going to a place or have to be somewhere, we lose sense of that boundary, 
And I think that's probably a big challenge for a lot of people these days. Yeah, I totally agree. What makes a great leader? Um, you know, you, and you, you you kind of spend a lot of your book talking about here are different modes in which, you know, people did some good things, but maybe not, it didn't work out. But then you kind of get to the sort of the end and you talk about the black diamonds and, and all that and, and uh, about, you know, what makes a good leader? Can you, can you speak to that? For me, great leaders are honest leaders. I think everybody is on a journey and I don't think that there is a great leader that is exactly the same as the other. I think great leaders have have shown themselves to have skills that are beyond what they were taught initially, be it young leaders or, you know, more mature leaders. And along the way, they are very, they have recognized the kind of journey that they were on, the things that they have learned, they learn more about themselves. And then they finally get to a point where they precisely know what kind of leader and what kind of strengths they have as leadership skills. And they're also really honest about it. So in the book, this is exactly what a black diamond is. Um, you know, they are, they are both young and mature. They are very seasoned leaders who are very willing to completely change the way they they manage things or you know they make decisions on a day-to-day basis throughout their lives. They may be serial entrepreneurs that have gone through multiple journeys and multiple businesses, but they were a different leader each and every time as they move um, forward. So for me, great leaders are people who are very, very strong in their self-awareness. They know exactly what makes them tick. They know exactly what works for them, for them and their people and the businesses that they are obviously creating and growing and building. Um, But at the same time, they're also very honest about it. So for example, I've worked with a leader who would just say, look, I find it very, very difficult to have tough conversations to give people negative feedback. And no matter how many times I've been coached, it's just not something I can get good at. Perfect. I love a leader like that. He's being very honest about where his you know, downfalls are, where his limitations are. And what do you do next? You get him someone in the leadership team that can do that right? It's about bridging those gaps around the table. A founder is a very lonely role and, you know, you don't really have to take on everything on your shoulders. You're there to build a business. At the same time, you're creating great leadership teams. So I would say those are great leaders. They are just so aware of, you know, what makes them tick and what they cannot do. And they find other other resources to bridge those gaps. I, I think that's super insightful. And I think, and Sundish will back me up on this, when we see a lot of these young companies, um, there's a, you know, there's, there's the leader who is maybe a leader for, the right leader for a point in time. But after a while, they're not that right leader anymore. And and having that self-awareness to say, I'm not that right. And we, Sundish, we've seen this a bunch, right? But I think a lot of this is, you know, when it comes to that leader, I hate to say it, but so much of it comes to trust. And just, mm-hmm. I think there's just a lack of trust with these executives because what's happening is the startup world, yeah, before it was hard enough to get in the startup world because the odds were what, one, one out of 10 survive or whatever it is. Uh, now I think it's even worse. You know, I think it's even more difficult for these startups to succeed. And so you're, you're seeing a lot of people going to companies and then their compensation changes within the first six months. They don't get what they were promised. They're not in the role that they were mm-hmm. promised. <laughs> and so, uh, of course, what was that person going to do? They're going to bounce. When we see some of these people, it's like the ones that are are successful. I mean, obviously, being transparent, like you mentioned, is really important. But the ability to say, hey, you know, this is not my skill set here. Mm-hmm. And 
I, I I'm going to get somebody in, even though I I will no longer be the CEO, but you know this person is going to be a better at that role, and I'm going to go back to doing what I do best. Totally, you know, totally. That's 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 a big deal. And when you find those people, I got to imagine that's a black diamond, right? Yeah, for sure. And this is this is also why um, I really this is the main reason why I would always advocate this. I think there definitely needs to be a solid seat around the table for a good HR folk who else are going to actually mm-hmm. call you out on these bad behaviors, right? We often, we often say that HR doesn't really have a seat at the table until the company grows into a certain size. But hey, hang on a minute here. We're also naturally the company's coach more so than often, whether we like it or not, it comes with the job, right? And it's it's being able to have these conversations, have these, exactly what Sineshi was saying around trust is, you know, how can I trust my team when I haven't even opened up myself to understand or to tell the other person that, that I may call my confidence that this is a gap that we have. Can we try our best to kind of fit uh, uh, bridge this gap or fill it rather than saying, no, you know, this, this is the role I do. This, I am the CEO of a company, whether or not I have my limitations, I'm just going to crack on because um, everyone else is just busy as it is already. This is where I kind of feel like is the downfall. That comes back to some extent to what Sonish was saying earlier about ego. But I think there's another thing at play too that I see a lot is sort of that fear. I think people, especially in younger startup companies, um, you get the individual who feels like, oh God, I started this company. I'm the CEO. I've got to have all the answers, right? And so they know they don't have the answers. So rather than rather than you know saying, hey, I don't understand this. Like, what do you guys think? They they get insular and they you know that that becomes that mm-hmm. ivory tower that you talked about earlier, and where they 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 don't want to be in situations with everybody because they may be asked tough questions that they don't have answers for, right? It's also really funny sometimes when I take a step back and I go, why do we expect the 25-year-old CEO to have all the answers in the world <laughs> when most of the people have, have, you know, twice the age don't even have the answer? What makes this person so special? It's the same thing, right? They're, they're just on the on this journey, like, you know, 20 years when you were on that journey itself. So maybe not take it for granted that the title means that you've got to have all the answers. And this is what also the book is really about to really kind of shine a light on how difficult it is to be a good founder. And, you know, let alone when you make small mistakes, you're absolutely crucified for it. So maybe let's give them a little bit of space so that they get that space to learn and eventually become the great leaders that we want them to, rather than just saying, no, You've taken this on. You've decided to open, you know, start a business. You are now the CEO. I now expect you to be the best version you can be when this person has another, what, 45 years to live. It's a tricky gig for sure. <laughs> um, and, and I know, like, you, you in, the, in sort of the last chapter of your book, you kind of have a, a questionnaire that you've got that sort of puts together, like, you know, for, for somebody who's going to be an HR professional, somebody who's going to be a leader of a company or, or somebody who just wants to go work at a company, um, you know, I don't want to give away, you know, buy the book if you want to, re- you know, get the questionnaire. But do, are there some, you know, insights in there that you could share with the audience about, you know, like if they're looking for a new job, here are some really key things to look for. If you're looking for a new job in a startup or just wanting to come into a startup for the first time, um, the f- the main three things I would always say to try and find out is one, really try and dig up what the culture is like. And when I talk about culture, it isn't just about the articles that are written about them. It's 
about their funding situation. It's really about how do people describe them? Find some hashtags. Sometimes on LinkedIn is a really great space where people, you know, tag these companies and see how they behave. Do they have, um, do they have any, you know, principally any any fundamentals that aligns to you? And if you feel like it truly aligns to your passion and what you believe is the right thing in life, then I would say go for it. Another thing is also definitely, definitely check out their retention. See if there have been any leaders in the last couple of months that has, you know, has left uh, for whatever reasons. What did they, where did they go to after that? You know, if you see a leader or if you see an ex-leader who have left a smaller organization to then go into a bigger organization, that's quite natural. But if you see them going from a small organization to another small organization, try to understand the why. I think, you know, you owe it to yourself to really understand the kind of evolution that you might be walking um, into. And finally, also, this is the one thing I really, really love. And also one of the things that deter me from working with a particular startup is I do look up the founders. I look them up on YouTube. I look them up wherever I can and see the way they speak, see the way they describe their company. And you get a really good sense, your gut will tell you whether or not this is the right person to lead the company that I want to be part of for a long journey or at least for a long period of time. And I got a recommendation you can watch. We got a lot of podcasts where we feature leaders of different companies. So if you got questions about it, go check our archive. <laughs> uh, so, so, Sophie, what's, what's next? What's next for you? Big question, right? The the big question is how do we keep the conversation going? And I think, you know, given given the book and the responses that I've been getting, I feel like this is heading to where it is supposed to head. I am working with a couple of people to hopefully launch the first cultural conference in Europe as well, because we believe that more conversations need to be had. We need to help each other out. It's a great community out there that are so supportive of each other, but you just never know when someone is actually in those particular shoes. Um, and yeah, we owe it to ourselves to help each other out, you know, either call out bad behavior so that they don't continue to fester in a business, or if not, let's try and work out some mechanisms, some techniques and try and break the cycle. That sounds awesome. And, and, and thanks so much for coming on. I think, like I said, this is some, Sunish and I talk about this all the time. So, you know, I think this is such a big and important area and, and I, it gets overlooked in the, in the mix up of all the chaos that goes on in a, in a business so often. Um, so keep up the good work. And, uh, if, if people want to get in touch with you for you to come and consult with them, uh, and if they want to get the book, where, where should they go? I'm easily found on LinkedIn. So definitely hit me up there. I'm on Twitter as well. It's just my first and last name, Sophie Teen. And I'm also on sophieteen.com. Well, thanks so much for being on. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for watching. I'd love to hear from you in the comments. And if you could click on that subscribe button, that helps us a ton. And I will see you in the next one.